Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and this week we're going to be discussing whether Vladimir Putin could end up in the dock and other pressing questions relating to the international legal aspects of the war in Ukraine. I'm delighted to be joined by Tatiana Eatwell, who is a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers and the joint head of the Doughty Street Chambers International Practice Team. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. If you want to find out more or support the podcast, please go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Thanks so much, Tatiana, for doing the podcast. Pleasure. Um, What we're going to do is, first of all, talk about the the beginnings, so the legal justification or otherwise for what Russia are doing, um, and then move into the different legal mechanisms that could be applied, international legal mechanisms, human rights legal mechanisms, to what is happening on the ground. So let's start with legal justification. We know there's quite a long tail to this war. Um, It's been going on, there's been aspects of it that have been going on for a long time. But ultimately, Russia have given a justification, a sort of purported justification, which is self-defence. Do you think there is any potential merits in that argument? Well, so if we go back to first principles, um, essentially under under the UN Charter and international law, which call it international law of the use of force, there are three essential bases upon which one state may lawfully use force against or in the territory of another state. That being if they are requested to do so by that state, they're invited there and they do so with the consent of the state pursuant to a Security Council resolution um, or in self-defense. And as you have rightly pointed out, President Putin has sought to justify his use of force uh, in and against Ukraine on the basis of a form of self-defense. So in his sort of very um, early hours of the morning speech, shall we say, um, he provided, let's say, three general bases for um, justifications for attacks in Ukraine or use of force against Ukraine, that being broad self-defense argument that there's a threat of attack, um, attacks against Russia um, by Ukraine and an existential threat of NATO expansion. And the collective self-defense argument, and in fact Putin um, referred to the UN Charter um, to say that Russia was acting in defense of the self-proclaimed republics of Luhansk and Donetsk, which he had recognized as states and um, said that they had asked him to come and help defend them from um, imminent attack attack or attacks, armed attacks from Ukraine. And in amongst that was this um, purported justification that the use of force was to protect ethnic Russians from a genocide being committed by Ukraine. Um, There's nothing that I have seen in the evidence that would certainly give any of these justifications legs. So 
there is no evidence that Ukraine has committed an armed attack against Russia or that such an attack was imminent. So the self-defense of Russia argument is, is very weak and I would say wouldn't stand up. The collective self-defense argument, there's no evidence again of any armed attack against the Republic of Donetsk or Luhansk. And even if one were to accept that they are states um, that could consent to Russia using force in those states, um, which I think the majority of the international community do not recognize them as sovereign states, um, the use of force used by Ru Russia um, needs to be necessary and proportionate to that threat. And so there's no justification, even on that basis, even if one were to argue there was some kind of um, legitimate self-defense there for Russia to uh, use force against the whole of Ukra Ukraine. And then the final justification, I mean, there's no evidence that I've seen of any genocidal acts being committed against ethnic Russians in Ukraine. And that sort of stems on to, which I think we'll be speaking about later in the, the case in the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, um, that was hearing a request for provisional measures um, from uh, by Ukraine yesterday on the 7th of March. Um, and that is that um, this kind of notion of a Russia um, was carrying out some form of humanitarian intervention to protect ethnic Russians in Ukraine. Again, I'd, from the information I've seen, I don't see that, that there is any um, reasonable ba basis upon which that could be upheld. So by all, all accounts, um, I think the overwhelming conclusion is that this is an unlawful use of force by Russia against Ukraine and an act of aggression. And we'll come on to what that means by an act of aggression. I noticed that um, Liz Truss was a bit confused about that um, in a parliamentary committee yesterday. So maybe we can um, we can help her. So um, the crime of aggression, and that that's look, referring to individual responsibility for an act of um, aggression, is codified by Article Eight bis of the Rome Statute, and refers to the use of armed force by a state against the sovereignty, territorial integrity, or political independence of another state, or in any other manner inconsistent um, with the Charter of the United Nations. So essentially, it's a unlawful attack um, against one state by another state by use of aerial attack and bombardment, sending of armed forces across it. Um, and it is the finding that the individual uh, leader, head of state, who commands such an attack would be criminally responsible for it. But one thing I find interesting um, you know, about all of, all of that is that Vladimir Putin really wanted to provide a justification in the terminology of international law. He's not somebody who just said, he, 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 didn't, he could have come along and said, well, I don't accept you know, I, I'm not going to bother with the international legal aspect of this because, you know, it's just nonsense. He he appeared to want to, um, and in quite some detail, explain to some audience somewhere why he thought this was all um, legitimate self-defense, NATO, um, breakaway regions, and all and all of that. Do, do you do you get do you, do you without wanting to psychoanalyze Vladimir Putin too much? I know that's a bit of a um, you know everybody's um, pet hobby at the moment. But why use all these um, expressions if they don't have any real 
they're not real they're not real justifications in international law well it's not uncommon for states to use the language of international law in the UN ch charter in order to justify their actions particularly when it's a question of use of force um and I should say that we're using use of force here Vladimir Putin refers to a special military operation there's there's no notion of any special military operation in international law it is an armed attack it's a use of force and so whatever terminology you might use in order to dress it up um that doesn't sort of make it much difference when we're talking about principles so it is not it's not unusual it's been done um on numerous occasions by all numbers of states many states including the United Kingdom in order to justify military intervention in other states and um also Putin is t speaking to an audience in his own country and um, part of this conflict is being fought um in the territory of Russia and it's the information war um and controlling the narrative in the country so that speech is very much laying the grounds for that narrative of what Putin would uh, possibly describe as a just war. You see this in common discourse, this idea is of just war. Um, and justifying this invasion of a neighboring country to Russians, many of whom have family, friends, um, and friends in Ukraine and, and are um, intimately connected with Ukraine. So... Yes, I mean, international law and the UN Charter are often used to justify these things, so it's not usual in that, unusual in that respect. And I imagine that um, he will continue to um, refer to principles of international law and to, in order to justify what is going on in U Ukraine. And I suppose there might be an, another aspect to that, which is giving potential allies at least some reasoning, even if it's specious, to be able to, in future, defend what happened, whether it's you know China in, a, um, in the UN context or, or, or other countries. Um, although it seems at the moment that there's a pretty wide international consensus against what's going on. That might not be the case when we look back later on. Yeah, I guess that's possible, sort of you know, laying the ground yeah, for future um, analysis um, of what's happening here. I mean, the international consensus, it's interesting that the vote in the UN General Assembly seemingly was overwhelming, but there were lots of abstentions there. And um, I think some really interesting work has been done by international lawyers um, looking at those um, abstentions. I think um, there was an article in the New York Times commenting on it and why certain states feel felt that they needed to abstain or ought to abstain in this case. So... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the use of force and acts of aggression are, are controversial issues um, amongst um, states, obviously, <laughs> um, probably one of the most. And there will be um, other interests at stake in terms of whether, in, in terms of where states find themselves um, and which side they find themselves of, on in, in the debate. So let's move on to potential breaches of the law. What kinds of areas of law are we looking at for somebody who's just coming to to this without any knowledge of how international law works what's what are the kinds of areas we're looking at where are the key sort of treaties and and um, principles and how do we interpret them so um 
In terms of uh, armed conflict, um, there are two principal areas of law that we're talking about. There's a law on the use of force, which governs the legality of the initial strikes, um, should we say, the, um, the use of force between two states itself, which is what we've just been talking about, um, whether or not who the aggressor is and who is acting in self-defense, essentially. Um, and then within um, the armed conflict itself, um, the actual fighting, should we say, between soldiers and the um, attacks carried out by soldiers is governed by what's called international humanitarian law or the law of armed conflict. And that is principally, although not solely, um, codified in the Geneva Conventions. Um, and those conventions govern what's called um, international armed conflict, conflict between two states, and non-international armed conflict, which is conflicts between states and non-state actors' armed groups, so the most recent being um, conflict between states and ISIL, ISIS in northern Iraq and Syria, um, or between armed groups themselves. And those um, international humanitarian law essentially codifies the obligations of states um, in the conduct of war, the means and methods of warfare. Who is protected from attack, who and what um, is protected from attack, what kinds of weapons can be used, um, and, and running throughout it is when military forces use these ideas of military necessity and proportionality. And then in addition to that, we um, there is, um, operates international human rights law, and that operates in parallel to international humanitarian law. And international human rights law will govern, um, as in all cases, as in, as in times of peace, the right to life, freedom for the prohibition of torture, freedom from arbitrary detention, rights to a fair trial, freedom of expression, etc. And so all those laws are in play, and they will determine how a state, or the states in question, in this case Ukraine and Russia, um, uh, respect and ensure respect for those rights in areas um, for people who fall within their jurisdiction. So that's the important point about human rights law. So in Ukraine, Ukraine has obligations, continuing obligations to everyone in its jurisdiction, everyone in its territory. And the controversial question ordinarily in these situations of armed conflict is the extent to which the invading state um, is uh, the, the human rights obligations of the in invading state are engaged when it is sweeping across the territory of another state. Um, so they, that's the state's obligations. And then within that, we have sort of, you know, state's obligations to each other. And that was, sorry, I'll go back, but that was the state's obligations to each other um, and to individuals. Um, and then we have individual responsibility, and that's governed by domestic criminal laws that will continue to operate, and international criminal law, which is um, governed by um, customary international law, but also um, most people would have heard of the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court that codifies uh, genocide and crimes against humanity and war crimes as crimes within that court's jurisdiction. Um, and then in this case, uh, we have 
it's an international um, armed conflict, and the Geneva Conventions require states to criminalize what it calls grave breaches of the conventions. Um, and actually, and the, the uh, United Kingdom has legislation that criminalizes these grave breaches, and they are crimes of universal jurisdiction in the UK courts, which means they can be prosecuted in our courts whether or not they are committed in the UK um, and whether or not they are committed by a UK citizen. And so those grave breaches are willful killing, torture or hum inhuman treatment, willfully causing great suffering and serious injury, extensive destruction or appropriation of pro property, um, and so on. It's also willfully depriving a prisoner of war, their right to a fair trial, um, and unlawful deportation um, and hostage-taking. So in addition to those grave breaches, we also have other war crimes and crimes against humanity, which um, involve uh, intentional attacks against civilians and civilian objects. And when, when we say civilian objects, we mean essentially civilian infrastructure, schools, hospitals, um, uh, roads that roads can be used for dual purposes, but there is an argument that a road is not necessarily only for a military purpose. Um, uh, homes and, <laughs> you know, a civilian car is a civilian object. And so these are all protected from attack and attacking those would constitute, um, is likely to constitute a war crime if done so intentionally. We've mentioned before um, crimes of aggression. Um, what, what, what is a crime of aggression? So the crime of aggression um, is in the Rome Statute. It sort of refers back to the UN Charter and talks about a manifest breach of the UN Charter. And really the crime of aggression is this criminal, seeing individual criminal responsibility um, for the person, ordinarily the head of state, who wages war against another state. Um, and in this case, the International Criminal Court only has jurisdiction over crimes of aggression committed by states' parties to the Rome Statute, um, of which Russia is not one. So people may have heard discussion about having a, a special tribunal to um, try these sort of crimes of aggression committed, essentially committed by Russia um, against Ukraine. And that's because the ICC cannot have jurisdiction over those crimes. And there is no other international forum in, in which individual criminal responsibility in, in this case could be tried. It could be tried in domestic courts. So let's, I, I, my understanding is that under Russian criminal law, Aggression is a crime and may be prosecuted in the Russian courts. It's unlikely that um, that will happen right now, but it may be that uh, should President Putin no longer be head of state, that there's some possibility that he may be um, tried in a domestic court um, for that crime. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month, that's just over £2, via our Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman, 
And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable and I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. So let's go back to um, the Geneva Conventions and the attacks on civilians and civilian objects. Now, we all see the distressing videos and reports. I mean, there was a um, report this morning, the deputy mayor of Mariupol was on the radio, on Radio 4 saying that there that had been an attack on a hospital, um, which, wasn't, which couldn't be verified by the BBC. And there was a bit of a discussion about um, how it could be verified. Is it possible, even in the the fog of war, and even in this sort of you know getting quite a um, disjointed r- reporting of necessarily reporting of attacks while they're happening, is it possible to say now that Russia is committing war crimes, is committing breaches of humanitarian law with a, with a degree of certainty? Yeah, I would say in a very loyally way, <laughs> there are more than reasonable grounds to uh, conclude that war crimes are being committed. I mean, there are reports, of course, they would need to be verified, of civilians being shot at in cars. And there is also um, footage that is verified of um, journalists being directly targeted. Um, And that, that would be a war crime of intentional attacks against civilians and certainly attacks against hospitals and schools that are not being used for military purposes would be um, a war crime. So I say that because there may be a situation, I don't think this applies here, but where a school is no longer educating children, the building has a sign of a school on the outside of it, but it is being occupied by the armed forces of one of the um, adversaries and um, there are attacks being launched from the building that was ostensibly a school in those situations it would it would not be unlawful to direct attack against the school I don't think that's what we're seeing here and I think there certainly are strong reasons to um, conclude that such attacks constitute war crimes it's also um, really important to um, understand that the way in which military um, a military should conduct itself um, in order to conduct itself in accordance with international humanitarian law is that each action needs to be a balancing exercise and there needs to be analysis and consideration of whether it is militarily necessary to make the attack and the um, it is the attack itself is proportionate to that um, military necessity, and so there's always some form of calculation behind, or should be some form of calculation behind um, the use of um, force and armed attacks. And so, in my view, the overwhelming presumption must be that where there is a school or a hospital attacked by form of aerial um, bombing or precision targeting, that there has been that analysis, and the analysis has been that regardless of those principles of international humanitarian law, the attack will nevertheless be carried out. And and what about sort of indiscriminate shelling? 
where the intention isn't to attack any particular place, but rather to indiscriminately shell a city. Is there? A, it, it, does does sort of recklessness count for the um, intention element of this crime? Yeah. So um, indiscriminate attacks against the civilian population is a war crime, um, as defined in the Rome Statutes. And um, the use of weapons such as cluster bombs is also unlawful because they are indiscriminate in their nature. One might argue that chemical weapons and and other forms of weapons like that would also meet that. And of course, chemical weapons are prohibited. Um, So yes, um, indiscriminate attacks. And what we're hearing now in the news is that the... the, um, the opening of humanitarian corridors to allow a civilian population to leave the cities. Now, there are lots of um, difficulties with the proposals um, that Russia gives of humanitarian corridors going to Russia or Belarus that might cause some difficulty for the populations of cities um, going that way. Is that, is um, that normal that they, I mean, I know they did, they did the same thing in Syria, but is yeah. that, is that a particularly Russian approach that we're going to let you escape into, to us? Well, it's actually a requirement under international humanitarian law to allow civilians to safety, to ensure that the civilian population is, um, removed from the area of, of hostilities. However, I mean, there's something quite um, absurd in a way to someone just generally that, thinking well, about it. That, that was the word well, that I was thinking. Well, you move them out of yeah. your the city of which which you're prohibited from bombing, so that you can raise it to the ground. Um, so that seems to be seems to be a method that Russia has used um, in Syria with respect to Aleppo of um, purportedly allowing civilian population to leave and then either holding whoever is left under siege and bombing on the basis that the only people that are left are combatants. Um, but, uh, but I mean, specifically going back to Russia or mm. Belarus, which presumably would be, well, first of all, it would put uh, quite a lot of people off and, and prevent them leaving at all. And secondly, would be very frightening for the people that, 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 that left because they don't know what's going to happen to them in Russia or Belarus. It's not a safe place for that for most of them. So is that specifically? Does that negate the um, the response, the the action itself of of providing a humanitarian corridor? I think it arguably does. I mean, I, I expect Russia would say, "Look, we're allowing them out. They're, you know, they they will be safe here, and we will protect them. Um, and we can, because it's going towards us, we can uh, monitor the corridor and ensure their safety on the way. But it's, um, I'm sure, for the people who do not hold any particular allegiance to Belarus or to Vladimir Putin's regime, it is quite a frightening prospect to go um, and seek safety and refuge in Russia when you have been subjected to bombing by that state. And so that is deeply problematic, and I'm sure um, uh, Ukraine will continue to oppose uh, well, I'm not sure, but it's likely Ukraine will continue to oppose Russia's um, propositions in um, in that respect. So let's talk about the, the ongoing legal proceedings because there are there's been a range of legal proceedings launched already, sort of live legal proceedings. Um, I suppose the main event at the moment is is the are the proceedings before the International Court of Justice. 
can you and, and we had a hearing yesterday so we're, we're recording this on tuesday the 8th of march there was a, a, a hearing yesterday monday the 7th um, which was meant to go for two days but didn't um and maybe you could explain why um sort of maybe talk about the background to that you know how does the court does the court have jurisdiction who triggered these proceedings what could potentially be decided in them and how quickly so on the 26th of February, I think it was, Ukraine instituted proceedings um, against Russia in the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, under the Genocide Convention. And the reason for doing so are likely to be twofold. First of all, Putin's um, attempt to justify the use of force on the basis that it was to protect um, ethnic Russians from genocide being committed by Ukraine and his drawing on the language of genocide. Um, and secondly, because neither, um, I think I'm right on this, but neither Ukraine nor Russia have accepted the compulsory jurisdiction of the court to adjudicate disputes between the two states. So that means that um, unless there is some treaty um, that they have both agreed to um, and under which they both agree that the ICJ is the appropriate forum into, into which to adjudicate disputes under the convention between them, then there is no recourse to the court for either one of those states. And the gen both states have signed and ratified the Genocide Convention without reservation to Article 9, under which they both accept that um, disputes on the interpretation and application um, of the convention, um, including with respect to state responsibility under the convention, um, may be adjudicated by the ICJ. So that is principally, I think, why Ukraine has instituted proceedings under the Genocide Convention. And what Ukraine is asking um, the court to do is to uh, declare that genocide, well, first of all, to declare that genocide is not being committed by Ukraine um, in the Donbass region. And that's ultimately what the merits will turn on. So it's seeking a declaration that there's no genocide. And then secondly, trying, I expect, through these proceedings to persuade the court to make a declaration that Russia's use of force against Ukraine was therefore unlawful. And that that's slightly more difficult. That second um, ask is slightly more difficult to achieve because the court is considering the case within the terms of genocide convention. So ostensibly, it's likely that the court will consider what the nature and scope of the obligation of states to prevent genocide is under the convention and whether that obligation allows for the use of force in circumstances where there is a serious risk of genocide being committed. And it's, the court has already said in the Bosnia genocide case in 2007 that states must use all um, measures available to them um, that are likely to be effective in preventing genocide, but those measures must be lawful. They must be in accordance with the UN Charter and international law. So it may be that the court just reiterates that position. 
But what the court's not likely to do is say that Russia has committed an act of aggression because that goes outside the bounds of its jurisdiction under the Genocide Convention. But I think what's really important about this case is not necessarily the merits, which may the hearings on the merits may come in several years hence when the um, conflict is hopefully over, um, but really the provisional measures application and um, by um, Ukraine, and you mentioned there were court hearings yesterday, and there was meant to be some today. So it was meant yesterday the court heard from Ukraine's representatives, and today um, was going to be a continuation of the hearing where the court um, could hear from Russia's representatives, but um, Russia didn't send anyone to the court. So those um, that that application for. Provisional measures is really important because what Ukraine is saying that there's an imminent threat of irreparable harm um, to its rights, and therefore, and those rights are the rights to not to be accused of committing genocide in bad faith, so as to justify use of force in the country. And so, Ukraine has asked the court to order that the Rus Russia immediately ceases its military operations, essentially, in Ukraine, so that they can be restored to the position they were in before the attack, bearing in mind the imminent risk to life and military or ongoing military operations. And it'll be interesting to see what the court says. I think it's likely the court will grant some form of provisional measures, but how they word it... Um, would be interesting. I mean, how how could the court, um, if the if the ultimate decision of the court is whether or not there's genocide, and that's the that would be the final decision, how could it make an interim measure on the basis of that of assuming that that there isn't genocide? Would it be a sort of there? That there's a good argument that it isn't gen genocide. Therefore, you must stop the war until. Um, because you have no, you are unlikely to have a justification or you, there's real prospects, you wouldn't have a justification. Do you understand what I mean? It seems like if that's the final outcome, that it's not genocide, how can you make an interim declaration on the basis of what will ultimately be the final, will have to be the final decision? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really interesting question. And I guess it's sort of one one that the court, court will have to grapple with. I mean, ultimately, um, Russia hasn't um, produced any um, evidence of there being any serious risk of genocide being committed. Um, Ukraine is asked, is asserting that they're right, that the, the convention be applied um, in good faith by all states and is operating on that basis. Um, and even if, even if, I, I, I suppose, even if there were, was a serious risk of genocide, um, being committed in Donbass. The Genocide Convention, as it has been, and the obligation to prevent, as interpreted by the court in Bosnia genocide case, does not allow for use of force that is um, in violation of the UN Charter. So that is without consent of the state or is not acting in self-defense. The idea of humanitarian intervention is separate to the genocide convention and there are certain states that think it is lawful to use force so so that would come under you know the the, the more sort of standard is this a justified justified 
war is this or is this aggression yeah sort of argument it wouldn't come under the genocide convention no not not it's humanitarian another, it's another reason it's another reason why you might um use aggression or use i suppose just use force yeah so the argument being under sort of humanitarian intervention is permitted where it is to protect people from atrocity crimes and, and and genocide, and it's it's controversial in in and of itself. So, it's, would would Kosovo be the yeah. the classic example of that? Yes, it would be. But I don't think there is any evidence um, that Russia has successfully produced to substantiate its claims. And in any event, given that the uh, conflict is now gone beyond those regions, and it's really quite clear that there is a military operation seeking to uh, gain control of Kyiv and um, the rest of Ukraine, I think the court would be in a good position to order provisional measures to immediately cease military operations that are neither necessary nor proportionate to its purported justification. And, and what would happen if Russia ignored those um, requests or orders? It would be told off by the court. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Could it, can it be expelled by the court? Expelled from where? From the Genocide Convention. I don't know. I mean, if they've signed, <laughs> they've, signed, they've signed up to the Genocide Convention, can they be prevented from using the Genocide Convention? Because they've, they've invoked the Genocide Convention. Or they haven't invoked the Genocide Convention, but they've, they've invoked the... They've invoked genocide. They've invoked genocide. Yeah. No, I don't believe it can be. And I don't think we'd want Russia to be... Um, no, made would... a non-state party. I mean, we want more. We want states to really be signing up to these conventions and signing up to the adjudication clauses. I mean, one of the main difficulties with the Genocide Convention, as experienced by peoples around the world, is where a state has made a reservation to this Article Nine, saying that it doesn't accept the ICJ adjudicating disputes. So, I think it's really important that we keep states in even if they seek to breach the convention or not act in good faith. But interestingly, also, when we're talking about provisional measures, so the, the European Court of Human Rights has also just ordered interim um, measures um, and called upon Russia to cease all activities that well, refrain from military attacks against civilians and civilian objects, so schools and hospitals, um, in circumstances where, as the court has um, found, there's a real and continuing risk of violations of the right to life, um, prohibition of torture, and Article 8, which is the right to private and family life. So what's interesting is we're seeing the sort of these international tribunals and mechanisms and these institutions coming into play, and Ukraine is using them in an armed conflict in a way that actually we hadn't really seen being used before. I mean, Ukraine seems to be using, drawing on all the mechanisms available yeah. to it and they jumped to it pretty quickly didn't they really quickly yeah within um they're well advised clearly but they, i mean they've been yeah. well they've been <laughs> they've planning been, <laughs> yeah uh, they've been in, involved in cases at, at the um the european court and at the icj for some time now with in relation to the conflict um and unlawful annexation of crimea um in 2014 so, I mean, it, it, it is interesting to see how these courts are coming into play. I, I think, unfortunately, it's likely that Russia will ignore the rulings and, and the, there's only so much the courts can do in well, that respect. Well, I mean, the, European, the, the Council of Europe could expel Russia ultimately from the Council of Europe. Um, do you think 
there's any prospects of that? Um, I don't know. I just wonder if we want to expel Russia from the, again, you know, if we're, we're thinking a lot about what's going on in Ukraine and to Ukrainians quite rightly, but at the same time, the European, the Council of Europe and the European Court of Human Rights is a really, a really important institution with respect to the protection of the rights and freedoms of Russians and people in the territory of Russia. And I think it's, again, it's a really valuable to have Russia in this, in this, I was going to call it a club, but with engaging with these institutions. Russia does engage with the European Court of Human Rights when it wants to. I mean, it's got many cases against it. And now more than ever, I think it's really important um, that people in Russia and in um, within Russia's jurisdiction have that protection of the European Convention on Human Rights. I mean, we're say, seeing, you know, the rights of freedom of expression and peaceful assembly and no doubt fair trial and arbitrary detention being violated now with respect to um, people who um, deign to call the conflict um, in Ukraine a war and not a special military operation. And so these are, I mean, it's really quite serious for people in Russia as well, what's going on in, in a different way, I accept. And for those reasons, I think that expelling Russia from the Council of Europe may be unproductive, shall we say. Um, yeah, the, the net result may, may ultimately um, lead to difficulty. Finally, we've spoken about quite a few different proceedings. Yeah. Um, is there any prospect in the near or more distant future that we may see Russian generals, Putin himself, um, or even Russian soldiers in the, in the dock of the International Criminal Courts or of any um, domestic courts, any local courts? Or indeed a special tribunal. Or, or, a, special, be, or yeah, a special tribunal. If it yeah. were to be set up. Um, I think there's always a prospect. I mean, there's, there are difficulties, legal and practical the legal difficulties being when you're talking about a head of state, there's questions of immunity from prosecution that that head of state enjoys whilst they're in power. With respect to the ICC, um, the ICC has issued an arrest warrant against a head of state before, president, the former president, Bashir of Sudan. And so it's quite possible that the ICC will issue an arrest warrant um, with respect to President Putin, should it find sufficient, that it is able to gather sufficient evidence of his involvement in alleged war crimes or crimes against humanity, whether or not that would result in Vladimir Putin being in the dock at the ICC is a more difficult question, um, particularly as he still continues to be the head of state in Russia. It's always possible that he won't be president forever, um, for, for the rest of his life. And in those circumstances, it may be a lot um, more viable for him to be prosecuted. I mean, even with the special tribunal um, that is proposed in terms of for, um, acts of aggression, there are difficulties there as well with respect to immunity enjoyed by the president um, as sitting as a president, which which are likely to be raised in legal arguments before the tribunal as to whether or not it can, in fact, 
prosecute him whilst he's still serving as a president. But what about prosecuting him for things he did whilst he was president? Does does immunity um, remain in place even when he's not president? Yeah, well, I think there would be strong arguments in terms of aggression as to why it shouldn't be there at all. (laughs) No, I mean, if you're looking back, say the Pinochet case um, is a great shining example of a former leader being prosecuted um, for crimes committed whilst he was leader. And, And with respect to the ICC, there is this notion that because states have signed up to the statute, they have waived their um, immunity, their, their leader's immunity from prosecution. Of course, there's a difficulty there because Putin, Russia, isn't a, uh, hasn't ratified the statute. So I think immunity is a very complex legal issue. And there are strong arguments as to why a former head of state should not enjoy it. Um, or indeed a serving head of state, there is always a possibility that those most responsible for any for war crimes and crimes against humanity committed in Ukraine um, will be prosecuted at the International Criminal Court. I think it's also important to state the situation is being investigated by the ICC is the situation in Ukraine. So there's, hopefully, one would hope that um, Ukrainian armed forces are themselves alert to the requirements of international humanitarian law and the need to respect it. It seems that they are, but the longer a war drags on, the longer there is a risk that both sides may be involved in alleged war crimes. And I think that needs to be remembered. And the hope would be that the investigation would act as a preventative measure so that um, generals and those all the way up are alert to the possibility that they might one day find themselves being prosecuted for war crimes should they carry out attacks against civilians or indeed mistreat prisoners of war, captured soldiers, etc. I think we're going to have to leave it there. Um, this, 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 it's so difficult and complicated, um, but you've made it seem straightforward which is um a credit to you so thank you so much tatiana um for coming on the podcast and and hopefully the war will be over soon so we can look backwards rather than live at what's going on um, in these horrific reports that we see thank you So thank you very much to Tatiana Eatwell, who's a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers and the joint head of the Doughty Street Chambers International Practice Team. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering LLB undergraduate programme taught in London. With Goldsmiths' rich heritage of social awareness and engagement, you can study with students and academics passionate about criminal justice, human rights, politics and law within a framework of social justice. If you want to support the podcast or find out more about this episode, go to www.betterhumanpodcast.com. Thank you also to Claudia Hyde, the research producer of the podcast, who has very much helped with an excellent note on this episode. My name is Adam Wagner. Thanks very much. Bye-bye.